So tonight I am going to be speaking on Daniel 1. The title is Daniel 1 and Reflections on Identity Politics. Uh, I really meant the word reflections. I wrote the title before I wrote the lecture. Uh, it has a little to do with identity politics. Not much. Uh, it could be called Daniel 1 and materialism, uh, or Daniel 1, uh, Christians in a foreign land. I'll give you a bit of homework, okay? I want you to give me a title for this lecture at the end of it, okay? <laughs> and tell me if this isn't somewhat accurate. Um, <clears throat> if you want a good talk on identity politics more properly, uh, I think the best one that I have heard is a, by my colleague Joshua Chestnut in Southboro Labrie. You can find it on their podcast, and it's called uh, Political Polarization, Pervasive Loneliness, and the Exhausted Middle. Uh, and he talks about those three things, politics, uh, loneliness, and exhaustion. Okay. Um, you know, people are exhausted about talking about identity politics. You may not even know what identity politics is. It's really hard to define. Uh, I'll just give you a brief definition. Not, uh, but like I said, my talk is not going to be exhaustively about this. I'm really allowing the Bible to set the agenda tonight. Um, or at least I allow it to set my, um, try to set the agenda for me, and I'm speaking out of that. But if I were to define identity politics, it's, um, identity politics can be consider, considered something as neutral. It's not a negative or positive thing. It's just a way of describing how people collect themselves together around a particular identity. Uh, so you might say, uh, uh, we're knitters, you know, knitters of America. You know, and we have, a, we have interest to see, you know, legislation passed for knitting, you know, something like that. You know, free knitters, USA. Canada. Yeah. Or Canada. Yeah. I don't like being treated as a minority. <laughs> In your own home country. <laughs> um, but it has become a popular word, and it has become a very contentious idea because identity politics has come to mean something derogatory particularly about left-wing politics. I'll explain in a bit, but um, because I just wanted to say at first, it was, uh, it's really a way, a, a tribal way of, um, or, or, of organizing yourself a particular identity. But you think of uh, gay activism, you think of trans activism, you think of feminism, and people would say that's just identity politics. Uh, and so it's not necessarily I'm not even to my lecture proper yet, okay? I'm just defining these things. Uh, and, they, and they said that, and what has happened is that particular way of forming yourself around that type of identity is rooting, um, rerooting truth um, as really power. That uh, absolute, absolutely central to all things is power. Who has the power? Who has the power to define truth? who has the power to name someone. Now that will play a bit of what I have to say tonight. And, and some people talk about there's common humanity identity politics. How can we see ourselves coming together 
my special interest group is one voice among many, but my voice is to bring everyone together. But uh, some people call this common enemy identity politics, which is basically to see everyone who is not on board with us is our enemy. And so, uh, and so really who gets to name whom is really at the center of that. Uh, but I have to say is that um, um, you can see identity politics being played on the right just as well. Okay. Uh, and uh, you can even see identity politics in Trumpers and never Trumpers. Uh, you can see identity politics in uh, white supremacy movements. You can see identity politics everywhere. Uh, and identity politics, as I started, is not necessarily bad but how it is expressed can be negative, especially if they root all reality to power. Who has power to name reality? Now, I will be dealing with a bit of that, and I'm not meaning to suggest left or right. But like I said, I want to know if you think my title is correct. Okay. Uh, and reflections was supposed to be something general. Now, my purpose, I'm, I'm actually coming back around. I started looking at Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel, and I wanted just to take each chapter. I didn't have an agenda when I sat down. Uh, my only agenda or my only purpose was to take the Bible in one hand and to take the newspaper, take TV, take YouTube, take media in the other hand and see if, there, if the Bible has some way to help me understand culture because I believe that the Bible gives us a lens on which to see the world. And so the people call that the biblical worldview. Uh, now, when people tend to read the Bible, they think it is an archaic document, but I do believe that it gives a freshness to contemporary issues. And so I think that Daniel 1 does that. So I've gone through Daniel 1 through Daniel 5, but I'm coming back around to Daniel 1 because I am going to be lecturing um, on this in Rochester, Minnesota in a couple of weeks. And I wanted to kind of give it another run through. So what I'm going to do um, is that I, uh, I'm going to read the passage and then I'm going to reflect on it. Uh, this is basically those who are, you know, who love structure. Um, this is my journey, okay? It's not entirely rigid. But my journey is, I'm going to look at Daniel 1, and uh, I'm going to bring out reflections of where I see similarities of contemporary issues, particularly where I see contemporary issues around being re-educated and renamed by modern ideology, um, or really being re-educated and renamed within materialism. Now let me explain what materialism is before I begin, because I will use the word a lot. When I say materialism or secular materialism, um, what I mean is that all reality is essentially fundamentally matter. It means uh, it's, it's material forces at work in matter. And that's how all things have come to be. So, you know, some people might think of evolution, but it's not evolution per se, it's really a philosophy behind a way of interpreting evolutionary processes to say that all things began with matter and all things that all the things that we see here and now is a result of material cause and effect um, and I'll be talking about that a bit more 
there is no God. There is nothing in there. It's impersonal and it's non-purposeful. So this is called secular materialism or strict materialism, or at least that's what I'm meaning by it. Now I will be talking about ancient materialism. That's Babylon, uh, and so there's some striking similarities. Okay, so there's the definitions: identity politics and materialism. It gets way more exciting after this <laughs> for me. <clears throat> okay, so let me read Daniel one. And, uh, and then uh, let's go through it. Uh, each of you have a handout uh, without verses and without headings. I really enjoy it this way. Uh, and it's also on a piece of paper. It doesn't have gold on the edges. And so just write on it. It's okay. Uh, it, it seems to help people approach, approach this. Um, and I guess you should also know that the... Uh, the author is presumably Daniel, we think. Um, at least certain parts we, we most think it is, most likely, but not necessarily all the way through. But the first half of the book of Daniel is stories. The second half are visions, and they actually correspond to one another. Uh, and Daniel 1 through Daniel 6 are six individual stories. And uh, they are chronological, but they are separate. So Daniel 1 is not the beginning of a story. It is a story that marks the beginning of many stories. Um, but you can look at it as a whole. And it's written by someone uh, who uh, he was from Judah, which was a, a nation that God, um, God had um, given them a promise to be with them if they abided in his covenant, in his uh, treaty with them. But they were unfaithful, they were exiled, they were pushed out of the country because Babylon overtook them. And so this are six stories, and actually the whole book of Daniel is written by uh, God's people, the Jewish people, that were outside of Jerusalem and felt that they had lost God's promises, or at least uh, lost the land that God had given them, and now they are outcasts. And they're trying to figure out how to make sense of godly faith or a biblical faith in the midst of a foreign land. These stories make sense of that. <clears throat> okay, so uh, that's some background about Daniel, and that's enough for you to, to get what I'm going to be um, saying. So here's Daniel 1. This is the NIV, the New International Version. <clears throat> in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. 
Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who's assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men at your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. <clears throat> Be rest assured, I'm not going to be advocating for vegetarianism tonight, <laughs> in case you're getting nervous. The Bible's coming down hard on veggies or animals. First thing I want you to see is Babylon has victory, okay? Babylon is the one who has had victory over, uh, over Judah, uh, over God's people. But you see in this first paragraph that while Babylon has some agency, it's ultimately God who has the power. He's the one who's handing over Jehoiakim. And interestingly, he's handing over articles from the temple or temple vessels. Uh, you know, basically his vessels and, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's thing. Thank you very much. And I'm going to put them in my temple for my God. And so God is handing over his vessels to be placed in this foreign God's temple. It's kind of strange that he would do that as well. <clears throat> um, and so, uh, but those vessels will become very important. They actually mark the downfall of Babylon. So if you read the book of Daniel, you know that the vessels play a crucial part in the downfall of Babylon. Um, and so the first time you read that, you don't know. But the second time you read it, after you've read that through, you think, huh, what's God up to? And I want us to, to think about that. Now, the Judean exiles, they, they came from nobility. They were royalty. They were in the lap of luxury as far as Judean qualities went. But they were still a desert people. 
They had some kind of nice things, but they were a divided uh, community. They had been in constant war with their, uh, with their brothers and sisters in Israel. Uh, and now their brothers and sisters had already been taken to exile. Uh, and they've been trying to fight this battle against Babylon. So they've lost everything. Now, so in spite of them being royalty and nobility, they have nothing to show for it. Now imagine them walking into Babylon. Babylon was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, famous for their hanging gardens. You still see evidence of something called the Ishtar Gate. Uh, it's this big, beautiful blue wall made of lapis lazuli, I think. Uh, it's gorgeous. They, were, uh, they are the same people that you hear of in Genesis 11, where it talks about the Tower of Babel. Uh, the, the whole aim of Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is to make a name for ourselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Uh, and, in fact, they did. They were internationally known. They were masters of mathematics. We still have an inheritance from Babylon. Even you used it today. The, the 60 second minute, the 60 minute hour. You wonder where that started. It started in Babylon. Uh, to say a full circle is 360 degrees, that's Babylon. Uh, but they were also masters of music. Uh, they were masters uh, in architecture. I don't know if you know much about their architecture, Brett. Okay. And, uh, but they also had extensive libraries. They loved education. Um, and they loved uh, figuring things out, particularly mathematics and, and, uh, and working out uh, how to structure society in such a way. And they became dominant. In fact, I imagine that these Judean exiles would have walked in, their country destroyed, had been starved to death uh, and weakened, and now they walk in in shackles, and they just see this very persuasive and intimidating power. So this is no small little place that they're coming into. <clears throat> you know, uh, you see that Judea these Judeans had basically fallen because God had handed them over. God had gave them over. It's not necessarily because Babylon was so strong. It says that because Yahweh gave them over, because God had given them over. And so it's really God's doing, not Babylon's doing. Babylon plays a part, but in a greater scheme that God is uh, doing. And so, uh, and the reason that uh, they really abdicated or they um, uh, yielded their security in God is that they started making alliances, political alliances, and it weakened them. They started playing party politics, you might think. And it weakened them, and it gave them over to a Babylonian empire. Uh, and so really, they abdicated their witness of what God was doing, and they tried to become like the other nations. And so I, I, I want to start there and say that, <clears throat> similarly, Christians have abdicated our witness over many years. This didn't happen in three years. It didn't happen under one four-year election. <laughs> it happened over generations. And it finally weakened them until Babylon was able to take over and set up all the pieces. Well, similarly, we Christians in the West, I should say, have abdicated our witness of a biblical witness or, or, uh, or let's say, a biblical worldview, a way to see the world. Now, 
It's uh, Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher, and he said this isn't because of the power of atheism. Because atheism was not even yet believable. But already the erosion of Christian witness started um, coming. And that erosion happened through theological debates, Charles Taylor says. Uh, one of um, some major ones is that uh, the idea that God, was God a, a distant or was God near? In a sense that, particularly in natural law. So God made the world. He made an acorn to become an oak tree. So did, did God need to like move it along? Or did God create it to go on its own? And so that was a, that's actually a really good question. That's really difficult to answer, too. And so they were having this theological debate. And what ended up winning out was that, uh, well, God wouldn't have created something that couldn't function on its own. You know, what if God sold you a watch and said he had to, be back, he had to hang out with you? And he had to tag along your arm and keep fixing the watch because he wanted to be present. You're like, well, that's not a very good watch. I want it to function without you around. And so this kind of theological debate gave room to God being separate from creation, separate from natural laws. Um, and, and that gave room to believing that the earth functioned on its own without God. At the same time, you had a theological discussion around the place of your mind or reason. And reason became more autonomous, self-functioning, self-governing. Uh, self uh, and this was a theological debate. And so it's like, well, the mind, everything else is a problem, but the mind somehow has free access to, to true knowledge. Uh, well, that ended up placing us not in need of revelation. We were just in need of our own good thinking. So God is distant. We have good thinking. Now, this created this kind of uh, this, this dualism between nature and grace. This kind of like there's what's nature, there's what's material, and there's what's spiritual. The Reformation tried to bring these back, but Charles Taylor points out the Reformation also brought hyper-individualism or just individualism, which has been hyped up in our own culture. So we're all looking at ourselves as individuals in a very material world that is in, not in need of God. These all occurred through theological discussions and theological movements. It's actually an inheritance of bad theology. And so us as Western, if you're a Christian in the West, it's because there's an abdication of God's biblical worldview over time that has weakened us and it has given over to secular materialism which i explained to earlier <clears throat> and so uh you see babylon um, was one that believed in an ancient materialism um, which i will explain in a minute and today's society believes in a secular or modern materialism uh, and you see you see quite this, a similar parallel well, as they have been dominated, this Babylonian, the Babylonian gods gave over this god of Israel, this podunk country that was trying to play big boy politics has now been crushed. And uh, they can tell their nice little fairy tales, but we know the power of the Babylonian empire. We just look around at our power, our mathematics, and we see that we should have the dominant narrative. We should control the story, the big story 
of telling you how the world works. And so these men, they take the best and brightest minds and they put them in university. You see that they go into education for three years. Uh, I guess they're getting their masters at BU, um, Babylonian University. <clears throat> um, I heard it's a party school. <laughs> but, uh, you know, whenever a new worldview is being given, it's not often given as facts. It's given as a story. Um, Liz gave a great lecture called about how stories shape our moral imagination. And that's precisely what stories do, particularly capital S story. Capital S story is where, what's the origin of all things? Uh, what's our place in the world? Uh, what is our purpose? What is our future? And this is what a big S story does. It explains and it shapes the way you see things. It shapes the way how you think about how you should act and what kind of person you are. And so the Babylonian story, um, story was particularly done by a book called Enuma Elish. I guess that's, I'm not up on my Babylonian or my Sumerian, I guess, or Chaldean. Anyway, one of those languages. Uh, Enuma Elish told a story about the origins of humanity. Uh, but it also told the story of the gods. It's not a story of gods telling the story but it's a story about how gods came about and how people came about. And so at the fundamental base of Babylonian faith, even though they had thousands of gods, um, all these kind of nature gods, their fundamental beginning was material. So Babylonian was materialistic. This is an insight that I gained from John Lennox, who also gives a great uh, series through Daniel. And so similarly, I see in our own day and age that the best and brightest are sent to university and they're given a large story. It's the story of secular materialism. Uh, the materialist story is that everything emerged out of conflict, perhaps a bang, perhaps some chance accident. That all started with conflict. And like I said, it was impersonal. There's no God that intended it. There's no purpose to it. There's no personal old man in the sky that gave gave it you know it's just material forces that science can look at through certain methods to try to understand how we can understand reality but it's the story that we're given now at some point one plus one equals three uh, and what i mean by that is somehow out of primordial soup human consciousness emerged self-awareness emerged where did it emerge from? We have no idea. Or at least the materialist has no explanation. It's, it's at some point one plus one equals three and then math returned to normal. And so something doesn't add up and it's just something that we have to take, okay? But it's the story where um, uh, consciousness came and, uh, and out of consciousness, in the modern story, out of human consciousness, the gods emerged. You know, the, the secular materialists would say the gods are not real. They emerged as human fantasy, um, a human coping mechanism. And then also out of human consciousness emerged morality, values, the idea of dignity. Uh, these are human inventions. They're, they're uh, constructions of human consciousness, but they're not fundamentally true. Fundamentally, 
at the base of all things, it's meaningless and it's orderly, but meaningless and impersonal, non-purposeful. And so <clears throat> this is kind of a story, but I almost think it's a story of nothing. It's a story of meaninglessness. It's, it's a story that's told as if there's a progress to things, even though in a sense it's a meaningless one. It's all sound and fury signifying nothing. <clears throat> and so I imagine you take the best and brightest minds in the world. They go to be educated in a university that they're going to be put in debt for. Mm. And they're taught all is meaningless. But somehow you exist and you know it. Imagine being taught that being shown science and these types of things. And what you're left with is I'm a ghost in the machine. I'm a ghost in an impersonal, mechanistic universe who could care nothing for me or who could care nothing more. It doesn't care for me at all. And so your existence, you're the best and the brightest in the world. Congratulations. Your existence is an accident. And so at the same time, they're being taught... Yet, something inside you, and they don't even have to be taught this, that there's something inside them that longs for meaning. Mm. It longs for significance. And so they cry out for significance in a meaningless world. So they're taught that all is meaningless. So make um, consciousness is where values and morality come from. So do the best you can. Um, basically, you're trying to carve meaning out of nothing. You're trying to carve significance out of nothing. Um, it's an unresolvable tension that is taught and learned and lived out. <clears throat> I don't remember who said this, but they said that we are condemned to be. I think it was Jean-Paul Sartre, but I'm not exactly sure. Does anyone know? Okay. <clears throat> but can you imagine that, that condemned to be? That existence itself is almost, I'm, I'm condemned for existing, even though I didn't choose it. <clears throat> so, so this dominant narrative, uh, of course, is not going to look to the biblical narrative. It's already been taken out. That, that God has died. They abdicated their witness. And look at the technology we have around us. The power of bu building big buildings. Technology, we can fly to the moon. Um... Uh, you know, the guy who runs Tesla, Elon, yeah. Elon Musk, is trying to take really, really rich people to the moon. Yeah. I won't say anything about that. <laughs> well, not only are they re-educated, it's interesting that you see these four, the brightest minds of all, are going to be renamed. It's odd that they're renamed. Why not just keep their names? It's because their names testify to the old order. It testifies to a biblical witness, and they don't want it. They're like, well, why would we need that? You need to be new and improved. We're going to give you new names. <clears throat> uh, so uh, they're renamed after Babylonian gods, particularly Marduk and Bel. So Daniel means God is judge, uh, but he is renamed um, to Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. 
You have uh, Hananiah renamed. Um, Hananiah means God is gracious. And he's renamed Shadrach, protection um, by the moon god. You have Mishael, um, trans, um, which means God is who God is. And this is some satire here. Uh, and has become Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. <laughs> it's like directly in the face, right? And then you have Azariah, which um, means God is our helper. And Abednego means servant of Nabu. So these people are being renamed, not only re-educated into this modern or this ancient materialistic narrative, but also being renamed according to the gods that um, control the narrative, as it were. Now, naming an ancient culture, uh, it wasn't just to define the power to define something, but it was also the power to identify. And when you named it, that meant you exerted power over it. You exerted power over it. And I think similarly today, people are not being named by Babylonian gods, but they are trying to make a name for themselves. You remember the Tower of Babel? In Babylon, they were trying to make a name for themselves. In our society today, we're really trying to make a name for ourselves. That extends beyond identity politics, but at least it, it, it certainly circles into that, especially as we think about universities and trying to make a name for ourselves. <clears throat> And though consciousness or self-consciousness is secondary, just like the gods were, somehow uh, it exerts power over the material. Language is not tied to something objective. It's tied to the subjective. It's tied to the power of the individual saying the words. And they're exerting their power over the material reality. Because the material reality is impersonal. I'm personal for some way. I don't know how. And so I'm going to exert my power over this material object, even if that material object is myself, because I have the power to name. And so, uh, and as I said earlier, identity politics is deeply tied to this idea around language, that language is not a reality, it's a construct um, which we apply to name reality in the way that we see fit. It's a way of trying to define truth as we see fit, to define identity as we see fit. And, and so it's rooting language in who has the power. Who has the power to name? Does Marduk have the power to name? Do I have the power to name? Or does, uh, or does Yahweh or God of Israel have the power to name? This, become, this is the debate here. Well, we see who has the power. Babylonian Empire renames them. And so you see that uh, identity politics is being played. It's not so new after all. It's, it's quite old. And as I said, identity politics can be played on the left or the right. Yet in spite of the temporary relief, I believe that uh, naming gives us, um, identity politics particularly gives us the ability to name our identity and then to belong ourselves around that identity. And that's what gives us belonging, and that's what gives us power. Um, while it gives temporary relief, satisfaction, the feeling of liberation, I believe that it comes at a great cost. It comes at a cost because it's what happens is if the world is meaningless around you, then the whole unbearable burden of being falls upon you. 
Are you significant? You have to create that significance. You have to carve out your meaning. Well, that's, that's like Atlas, the, the one who had to carry the world on his back. But only a god can carry the weight of the world. And humans are crushed underneath it. Francis Schaeffer speaks about that. And so how do we carve meaning out of nothing? How do we carve identity out of nothing? Well, when we do, it starts creating a desperation of conflict. When I'm trying to establish my name, and you try to establish your name, then we are gods in conflict. There is nothing hold us in unity, and the world becomes one of power plays. And that's what we see on university campuses. That's what we see in our party politics. We see people trying to take a hold of an identity of a group to whom they belong that is an enemy to the rest. And everyone else is ruining it for us. You know. And that's, that's, that's the conflict that's inherent in materialism. It's, it's not an incidental or just happens to be a bad time right now or we're trying to move towards something better. It's an inherent contradiction. Mind versus matter. You know, value versus meaninglessness. Consciousness with unconsciousness. How does it, it constantly, it's, it's, it's an eternal conflict. It's an eternal contradiction that puts people under great burden. So, I want to turn to the second part of my talk about how might the Christian respond. And I think Daniel uh, 1 gives us some light to that. How might a Christian respond in the midst of a foreign land when they've already lost their power in a sense? And I want to say that God has not left himself without a witness. God has not left himself without a witness. And I could say, do I have a witness? But I'm not going to, because you may not come from that tradition. <laughs> Uh, but God himself has not left himself without a witness. I want to come back to those temple vessels. You notice that the temple vessels were taken from God and placed into the treasury of the foreign God. I think that's an unusual statement that should give us some pause and some reflection. And so I like to be creative and imaginative in how I think about these things. If you think I go too far afield... Just tell me later. But I think that uh, it does give us something. Because these vessels indicate that God is the one who is king. The vessels point to God's kingship. These vessels indicate that God tells us what is sacred. It tells us that God is the one who names things. And when we misuse it, then it will come and condemn us. Just as it will with Belshazzar in Daniel 5, when he takes the, he says, I'm having a party, and for some reason uh, they're drinking and they're like, hey, it would be so much fun to bring out those golden and silver vessels, those cups in the temple. Let's bring them out and drink to our health and drink to the gods of our success. And what happens as soon as they drink, Belshazzar, if you know this story, he sees writing on the wall, which means that their days are numbered and, and the kingdom will fall. And so the vessels are God's witness that he has not, while his people have abdicated, 
Um, while maybe the, the, his people have lost ground, God himself hasn't. And he's left himself a witness. And so I think that there's some things I can point out, but one thing that I've been kind of building up to and I want to say is one of the vessels that God has put into the, foreigns, um, the foreign gods' treasury is this belief we have today in the inherent dignity of the individual. I think of one of God's vessels is the, in, the belief in the inherent dignity of the individual. Because this is not a view that comes from materialism. It's not something that has been a logical conclusion from materialistic presuppositions. And in fact, it argues against it. The only place that we find in this belief in the inherent dignity of each individual, and so every individual deserves respect and value, is a biblical witness. It's the one that comes from Genesis 1, and it is rife throughout Scripture. <clears throat> that, one, that you have dignity, and that even your enemy has dignity. That God is over it all. And so I believe, or I imagine, that the current secular materialist is trying to take the vessel. God has given over this, God's given over his people to secular materialism, and the secular materialist takes something that is sacred to God into their own treasury. But now it's condemning them. They try to co-opt it, co-opt it and say life is meaningless, but yeah, I have inherent dignity. Yet this vessel cannot coexist and in fact creates conflict within the materialistic worldview. It reveals that the materialists cannot live consistently with their own presuppositions. And we need to be thankful for that. As, as people seek for their dignity, as people seek to find a name, um, then we should say they're moving toward being human. They're striving for what God can give them and what God does give them, but they don't know it. They're trying to use the vessels, but not, the, not without the knowledge of what makes it sacred and who gives it to them. Because in the materialist view, this, um, as they move away and try to move toward their materialistic presuppositions, the one that says, I'm not obligated to any god or fairy tale, the further they go through that, the further it creates conflict because they know that they have dignity. And so they move back and forth in conflict within themselves. But not only is this unburdable, unresolvable uh, conflict within themselves, it, it creates conflict with others. And so we're in constant conflict in trying to establish our identity when we don't, when we don't understand the origin of that vessel, of that, um, that dignity. And the Bible speaks of this conflict that we have within and this conflict that we have with others. Uh, and it's, uh, Romans 1 says that when we exchange the glory of God uh, for a created thing, when we exchange the truth of God for a lie, it creates internal disorder and it creates external disorder. It creates strife and envy, um, all kinds of bad things. All kind of internal and social disorder. And Paul says, this is the judgment of God upon you. Because he has given you over, just as he gave these God, um, Judeans over, he's also given 
anyone who doesn't live in light of his truth and of his reality, he gives them over to the disorder. <clears throat> and, uh, and that is expressing that God's judgment is falling upon one when someone rebels. And so this ex existential conflict is an experience of the judgment of God upon us. And that points to Daniel's name, which means God is judge. God is judge. <clears throat> I think it's interesting that when we take the names, when the, the exiles' names are taken away, it actually takes away the gospel. It takes away the revelation of who God is. Because they're trying to name God in the way that they want to. And so I just want us to look for a minute just at the names. At how These four names, which if you notice how often they're renamed throughout the rest of Daniel, they're called Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. But here they're renamed in their Jewish names again and again and again. And Daniel means God is judge. And so there's this experience of judgment that is falling not just on them, but on all the world. And so Daniel continually reflects on God's God overseeing Babylon and how he's given them this power, but also he will judge them with the misuse of that power. But if we were only left with Daniel's name, I think it would be incomplete. And so you look at Hananiah. His name means God is gracious. That's this, these four names is a fuller witness of God's nature. So you do have to have this idea that God is judged, that God is just. And our experience of lostness or existential angst uh, or internal discord and external discord is a result of God's judgment on us. But the reason that that judgment falls on us is not to be a final word. It's that lostness that's supposed to press us towards seeking him. And when we do seek him, we receive his grace. Hananiah. God longs to be gracious, but it's his judgment that pushes us toward to know his grace. Because we want to know he's just, but we also want to know that he's merciful. We long for both deep, deep down. And then Mishael means God is who God is, which speaks that only God is autonomous. Only God is without an identifier. God is the only one who can truly name himself. God is the only one who can govern himself. He is above all and he's over all and in him all things hold together. These are ways of speaking about God. It speaks of his transcendence. And all other reality is contingent or dependent on him. And so God is transcendent. But God does not remain distant He's not, he's not mixed up in the vagaries of time, the, the flux, the ebb and flow of power plays. He stands over it all. But he's not distant. He comes near. Azariah, God is our helper. He comes near. And we've seen how he came near in the person of Jesus. He came near, so near as a child and in his life, and told him of himself, told him of his father, told of his father. And then God comes so near that he gives us his helper, the Holy Spirit, that dwells in us and gives us our true name. 
God is naming us. The work of the Spirit is to, to explain our true identity. In fact, I say our true identity is something that's not yet known. It's something that we know in part, but we know that God knows us in fully. As we long to become known by Him, and it says in Revelation that we will receive our true name from Him. I was joking the other day, just what if God tells you your name is Holga, or, or some terrible name that you don't like? You're like, can I change this? No, I, I think about it as uh, that God being able to speak a word and saying, I know you, and you going to the very core, deeper than you've ever experienced. That somehow that your name throughout your life builds up connotations. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. But at the very core, you know that you're just your name is just your name. But when God tells you your name, it's true. It's sterling. And so the four friends, as soon as they're renamed, and uh, then the gospel is lost to us. But as we come to know that we have a personal creator, the, the nature of who God truly is, we begin to understand ourselves. We begin to understand our origin, our place, our purpose, our overall story, the true story that sometimes gets lost, that often gets lost. And that, that we have consciousness, that we are aware that we exist, that we know that I'm a person, that we know that we have dignity, is not an aberration, it's not an accident of the system. It makes complete rational sense, if God is personal, that we would be persons. That if, that if I feel a sense of significance, then there must be something significant to the one who made us. And so when you, when you come to understand who God is, you come to understand who you are, and all of reality, and it all comes together. And no longer is it, a, is it an eternal conflict. No longer is it an existential conflict or contradiction. It all comes together. It all makes sense. No longer are we ghosts contending against the impersonal, mechanistic view of reality trying to carve out meaning but abiding in the one who knows us, who speaks meaning, who is meaning himself, and that we live in a every small act, and no matter what, who that person is, no matter how small and significant, has dignity because God has made them and knows them, calling them to himself. <clears throat> uh, once we understand that reality is no longer in eternal conflict, uh, at its core, that it's not in contradiction, that God holds it all together, that He oversees it all, that God has not lost control. Uh, the Christian, like Daniel and the friends, are reoriented to what true power is. And so this is uh, my last point. <clears throat> now, you see where Daniel wants to be distinct by not eating the food. But before we get to Daniel and the four friends desiring to be distinct, I want us to notice that it says that they became very skilled, uh, gaining God gave knowledge and understanding in all kinds of literature and learning. They were able to go to be you and not lose their faith. Okay. 
they immerse themselves in the literature. You know, sometimes I meet Christians who are terrified to read atheists or pagans or something like that. But if you hold the Bible in one hand and these other books in the other, it can give you all, God can give you all kinds of wisdom and knowledge to understand. Um, furthermore, you know, this, this follows the call that Jeremiah says um, from God, seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of the nation. Now that's strange that Jeremiah, before they're exiled, is called that God says, no, you need to seek the welfare of your new oppressor to come. And so these godly people are not trying to huddle away and trying to bubble wrap themselves away from the cultural conflict. Uh, nor are they accommodating themselves. But, but they are seeking to learn the language of the nation, seeking, seeking to learn the language of the people, so that they might have a word to give them. Um, the Christian needs to be able to articulate the biblical worldview and the gospel in the language that people can understand, not just with Christianese. So we need to seek to learn how people, what people learn. And so Daniel and the friends are being steeped, God giving them wisdom and understanding, in this pagan literature. <clears throat> and in fact, they become those who are in public office. They're not just seeking the welfare in their private little ways. They become second in command, third in command. They become leaders. They take public office in this foreign um, nation full of gods. Now, we often think of politics as something quite neutral, maybe secular. Um, In Babylon, politics was deeply steeped in religion. And in fact, I think that all government and all politics is deeply steeped in religion. <laughs> Secular materialism is a different form of religion with its own liturgies and its own cultural practices. But what that you see is that Daniel and these four friends are seeking the welfare of the city and wanting to understand their story. Not to be taken over by it, but to know how to speak into it. That's the first part. But yet Daniel wants to remain distinct. He doesn't want the food and the wine given. Now, some people have tried to figure out the theories. It doesn't just say meat. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes the meat would be sacrificed to idols, and maybe that's where the early Christian church would have questions over that. Um, it says wine. There's nothing wrong with drinking wine, but maybe they don't want to be seen as drinking too much. Um, it's hard to say. But what we do see is that maybe they're just trying to find one small way of being faithful in the midst of the foreign nation, uh, among the pagan oppressor. What are the small ways that we might have acts of faithfulness that show that we are distinct, that we don't look to the gods of the day? but that we are secure in the God who is over all. And so that's what I think that they're trying to do. They're trying to remain distinct in some small way so that they, that they can listen to this literature that is of the oppressor, but at the same time seek wisdom from God to understand it and to speak into it. <clears throat> 
Now, while there may be frightful moments, they never were overcome with fear or anxiety. They trusted in the one who oversaw them. <clears throat> in fact, Daniel would be able to serve and seek the welfare not just of Babylon, but of um, Persia and of uh, wherever Cyrus came from. Was he Persian? I think he was. So, the Medians as well. But he, he served under a variety, Darius the Mede, he, he served in three different public offices of three foreign nations with all their different gods and was yet able to be seen as wise and understanding. And so I thought, well, how can a Christian today in this foreign land that we find ourselves, in the midst of a narrative dictated by secular materialism, what in ways can we read and become aware of the knowledge and the language that's being spoken of today, and yet have small acts of faithfulness where they are there where people say, wow, there's something good here. There's some wisdom here that I have not been able to attain. I mean, that's our longing for at Labrie is that people will say, there's understanding and wisdom and health here that I have not been able to find elsewhere. Where's the source of that? Now, Nebuchadnezzar is very slow in understanding this. He seems to get it later on in his life. Belshazzar doesn't. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem. But how might we be people who seek the welfare of the city, remaining distinct, where people will come to us and say, I need that wisdom. I need that understanding. How might the Christian act? Here's just a couple questions. How might the Christian act in the midst of identity politics or polarized partisanship? How might we seek the welfare of our places and remain faithful as distinct? Now, each of you are going to have a distinct call. Some of you will have bigger places, larger responsibilities. Some of you will have smaller. But what does it mean if you're a Christian how does it mean to seek the welfare in your place while remaining distinct? It's very tricky. It's all different for each of us, yet we call on the same God looking for him to give us his wisdom. And perhaps the act that helps you main, um, become distinct is different from the next person. It might mean giving up meat. <laughs> Who knows? In order to have a word. But I see that... Um, uh, that whatever it is, is that Daniel and the friends are never taken into the urgency of the moment, that they're able to trust that God is over Babylon, over Media, over Persia, over Assyria, that God is the final ruler, and that we don't have to be swept into the urgency of the moment, and that we can just rest that God will um, proclaim his own witness as we seek to be faithful in small ways. The last thing I want to say, because I've had mentioned identity politics, is the very last thing I have to say before I open up for the discussion. And it's very straightforward. If, if inherent dignity comes from God, and it's something that we profess, it's something that we profess as what the gospel teaches, it's something that we ourselves has taken on as a Christian, then how important it is to recognize even one caught in partisan politics, even one caught in the most negative form of identity politics, 
as seeing them with inherent dignity. <clears throat> How we do this is difficult. But seeing that they are in desperation to be named by God. In desperation to find the peace um, uh, that is offered by a God who holds all things together. So I, I, I plead to anyone, keep calm and carry the cross on. Yes, that's, I just thought of that, but that's great. If you make t-shirts, I get a cut. Um, but also respect the dignity of those with whom we speak and even the ones with whom we think. Okay, I want to end there. Um, let's have a conversation. Uh, but first, uh, do you have a title for me? So you said that at some point, one plus one equals three. Yeah. And you didn't know where does that come from. And that's from Quebec. <laughs> I'm sure of that. <laughs> I thought that was I'm making fun English accent is awesome Thank you Thank you for the comment Comedic relief I don't have a title for you though Okay You don't have If you have a question That's great But if someone comes up With a title at some point That's great Otherwise I'm just going to keep it Yeah bro Yeah just Um Looking today at uh, you know that on Facebook it says that you can watch little videos and so on, and there was one which had, I, I assume had been made by a very pro-life group hmm. interviewing people at the the recent like last week pro-life march in Washington, which uh, President Trump participated in for the first he was the first president ever to do so, mm -hmm. and the pro-choice movement you see. And just looking at the two, you know, obviously the pro-life people were stressing the, the, the inherent value of, of, the, of the unborn child. And of course, the, the, uh, the pro-choice people look very obnoxious and so on. But, of course, they were upholding the inherent dignity of the woman, Right. you see. So it's interesting because you, you just mentioned about seeing people as caring, as having inherent dignity, that both those movements have that same heart belief yeah. in the inherent dignity of, of one, inherent dignity of the other. Of course, how do you yeah. uh, bring the two together? That's another question. Yeah. But it's Thank interesting you. that what you said, you know, that is the vessel that is there at the heart of what some of us might seem as being one of the most destructive movements ever. Yeah. But yet, at the heart of it is that sense of the inherent dignity of, of, of women who have been dehumanized, the half the human race has been dehumanized since the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is a great example, and I know that what I'm talking about is very complex. You know, um, uh, I'm not trying to give easy answers. No. Uh, and I know that you're not looking for a decisive answer, but I do see the tension on, okay, how do we navigate when the language of dignity comes in and asking the question where does that dignity come from and what happens when there's a competition of need a legitimate competition of need um, of course uh, I think in that I think even on the pro-life movement 
they would say the mother has dignity. Uh, and so in the case of uh, the, the mother dying, then I know that in, there's many pro-lifers that would say, well, in that case, for the sake of the mother, because if, if the baby is saved and the mother is gone, then it creates a whole bunch of different problems. Um, and so it's no easy solution there. One's got to die. Um, and so that's a complicated ethical issue. But the, the premise there is that the, the mother has dignity, that the child in her womb has dignity. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to, uh, pro-lifers are trying to work out the dignity that God has given them. Now, not all pro-lifers are Christian. Many are. But I think that the basis is trying to understand how do we work out the dignity between a competition of needs, particularly if those needs are life and death. But when you have pro-choice, there are some that are um, calling for the dignity of woman. And uh, there's a whole bunch behind that of uh, trying to have liberty over my body. Um, I'm, uh, that women are tired of being dictated by a very uh, male-dominated dom society to be told how their bodies should and shouldn't be used, what kind of freedoms they have. But often in that situation, the discussion of dignity is coming, um, it's centered in my personal freedom more often than not. Uh, it's, uh, and so the, the source of dignity, I, I think, differs, and that changes the way that you interpret. Uh, and you think of the child that is in the mother's womb as not having that same freedom. They're dependent. And so, um, and so we can say inherent dignity of the individual, but we have to say what does dignity mean and what is the source of that dignity, and it really changes the discussion. Um, so, but this is where I think um, I'm definitely more sympathetic to the pro-life movement but I, I hear the pro-choice movement in what they're saying. And I want to be sympathetic and try to understand that, though I know where my convictions lie. Um, but I, I want to say, well, um, how can we bridge this discussion around the source of dignity? And that I don't want to root it just in my the, the right over my own body, the right over my own. Um, because I see it as a misuse of the vessel. It's a misuse of what God has called sacred. Um, not to say that the woman is not sacred, the woman's um, liberties should not be uh, negated, but, but, uh, but in a competition of need, I want to say, well, let's look more closely at what God declares as sacred, not necessarily what we hold to be sacred. Kind of following up on that, how do you see the connection between dignity and freedom? Because I, um, yeah, I see some of these things, some of these issues are related to be politics and whatnot. As, as it seems like more related to the issue of freedom and choice, like um, that is not even that when we talk about like what I can do with my body or not, like it, it doesn't necessarily. In some of the discourse, it doesn't even matter whether it makes me happy or not, you know, um, or gives me more dignity or not, but the, like, somehow the dignity lies in, in just my ability to choose what yeah. I, I don't know, I'm having trouble articulating it, but just wondering if you could. 
Yeah, so a question for the recording. I hear that sometimes people have a hard time listening to the questions. Mm -hmm. And they turn it off, so don't turn off. Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, how do we distinguish between freedom and dignity? Especially in today's discourse, dignity often means freedom over my body, freedom of my choices. Uh, and, I mean, this is what I'm saying in by looking in my lecture is that we root dignity, like we, we, we take what God calls sacred and put it in the house of uh, another God and try to make that sacred in the use that we want it to have. Uh, and I was saying how that can condemn us. It, it creates an internal existential contradiction. Uh, because freedom, the way we think about freedom in the West is uh, autonomy, human autonomy. And I said that only God is truly autonomous. Only God is truly free. But God can't do whatever he wants. God will always act according to his character. So God is constrained to his character, but by being constrained to his character, he's truly free. Uh, it's, you know, it's the proverbial fool who does not abide... Um, in God's reality, therefore he's constantly lacking courage or he's lazy. He actually abdicates his responsibility or abdicates his freedom, really. Um, uh, it's, or when Jesus says, take the yoke, um, take my yoke upon you, my burden is light, you know, my yoke is easy. And so God, Jesus is constraining us, but he's teaching us how to be free people because we, um, uh, we constantly use our freedom for the sinful nature and therefore enslaving ourselves. So Paul says, don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Use your freedom to be slaves of love to one another. That's the actual Greek. I mean, Galatians. And so freedom um, should not be confused with dignity. But we conflate the two because freedom is our highest value. And since freedom is our highest value, autonomous individual freedom, um, that we attach dignity to it. But, um, uh, but according to the biblical worldview, dignity is that we are created and known by God, whether we are even in prison. Uh, you know, Maya Angelou had that great title of a book called, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Paul is saying, oh, people are preaching against me. I'm in prison. I might get killed tomorrow. No bother. As long as Christ is being proclaimed. To me, that is a person who is free. He's not trying to determine his freedom by his uh, power over his immediate circumstances. He sees that his freedom rests in being known and that his life is meaningful and that it will be weighed as meaningful. Um, so uh, in today's discourse, when people start talking about my dignity is my freedom, I would have uh, it's a worldview conflict. That freedom is not the highest value. Freedom is lost when it's the highest value. Um, freedom only comes when it is tethered to God's character. Uh, just I'm not sure how well I'll articulate this, but I'm going to try. When you were talking about the materialist viewpoint being constantly incongruent, yeah, um, like isn't that a bit of a sleight of hand trick to say that because anything is can be places incongruent when you pick a specific time frame. 
Like, okay. if you zoom back far enough, can you not take a frame of reference where, like, like you can always use the, like, we just finished New Year's, and the New Year's resolution, right? Okay. You can say quickly, like, all right, in a year this will be meaningful, but in 10 years I probably won't remember it. So by that frame of reference, the New Year's resolution, or maybe you will if it's a big one, but just as an example, like, it's not as meaningful a reference point. And so isn't that, like, what, were you doing that somewhat when you were looking at the materialist viewpoint? Like, does that make sense? You're taking a reference point by saying their, their perspective is incongruous mm -hmm. uh, and taking a time frame, looking at it from kind of a more long-term time frame right. and saying that from that perspective it's, it's incongruous, but from a shorter time frame it could be coherent. Yeah, so, so if I understand right, you're saying that the question is uh, perhaps I'm doing a sleight of hand mm -hmm. by taking uh, a look at secular materialism mm -hmm. in an eternal scale or a metaphysical scale or yeah. generations upon generations rather than the day-to-day -day yeah. scale or the yearly resolutions mm -hmm. uh, where we might have... Um, uh, I decide to do something and then I do it, and, and then, then I can I say that was a meaningful that. action. Yeah, I helped. I helped the uh, the lady across the sidewalk or mm -hmm. carry her groceries or something like that. Yeah, are you saying that that's not meaningful, Clark? Mm -hmm. I'm a secular materialist or something like that. Yeah, I would say I, it, it wasn't a sleight of hand. Okay. Um, I, I I will I will follow up with a question you didn't ask, but someone that asked that was something similar to that. Um, but so when you have smaller meanings, let's call them smaller meanings and larger meanings. I think, um, and my colleague Dick Kies at Southborough talks about a gradation or um, uh, meanings by degrees. That there's small ones. Um, I made a good cup of coffee mm -hmm. to raising my family toward living a, a life well lived. Um, um, and then capital N meaning all, all people's lives matter. Uh, I would say that these smaller meanings cannot exist untethered. Now, I might say that they have meaning, and in fact, they may have meaning. But I'm saying that within secular materialism, it is a logical contradiction, or it's, it's, or it's an incons logical inconsistency to say that all of life is meaningless, but this small act is meaningful. Now, it might be perceived as meaningful, and I would say, yeah, it is, but that's not consistent to your worldview. You have to say it's meaningless all the way through. Because what gave that, what gave that small act meaning? Well, you might say, because I completed it. I completed what I foresaw. But what, what, what gives completion meaning? What gives action meaning? And so smaller meanings are tethered to... Um, uh, to larger meanings. So I don't think it's a sleight of hand. I think it's a true logical inconsistency. It's a true contradiction. And that's why it creates an eternal conflict, even though by God's grace, we don't always see it as so. Um, and so people can say, well, life is meaningless, but I want to do a good job teaching it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, I don't think that we can live consistently to it by God's grace.
And the, and the further we move toward trying to have a meaningful life, even if we don't believe in meaning, is, is moving closer to God's reality. And I'm becoming more and more human the, the, the closer I approach God's reality um, rather than my inconsistent presuppositions. Now, just I want to add to that. Uh, someone said, well, Christians are just as contradictory as a materialist. You know, a materialist contradicts and, you know, you see Christians, they have sin. You know, there's sin. Uh, I had to think about that a little bit. But with the second materialist, the um, contradiction lies at the very root. Mm -hmm. But for the Christian, um, when they sin, it's, let me call it an apparent contradiction, but not a real contradiction. And so it's one of human rebellion. It's one going against it. Somehow God created reality where I can go against his will. And so it creates conflict. It creates contradiction. But two things about this. One, it does not ever subvert God's sovereignty. God is always all over all, and his purposes will be accomplished. His ways are not our ways. Uh, a man uh, directs his step, um, makes plans, but the Lord directs his steps. So God's sovereignty is never subverted. Even human sin cannot uh, overpower God's purposes. We see that with Jesus on the cross. It was human sin that nailed him there but it accomplishes God's purposes by it. The second is that when Christians sin, they actually are proving the system consistently because it says all are sinful. Um, none are righteous, not even one. And so um, I like what Chesterton says. The church is not proven wrong. No, I, the, the church is not... I can't remember how he says it. <laughs> Paraphrase. Uh he said that the, um, the church is, is not proven wrong when it sins. It is proven right. Which is not to affirm sin. But saying, well, that's what the church already said. Of course it's going to sin because it teaches that we are sinful and rebellious. And so it's more of an inherent contradiction than an inherent one. It's not one at the eternal or deepest root. Um, so, and that's different from the materialist contradiction where they say consciousness um, exists and matter exists and they are in conflict on who gets to have the power um, and Babylon had its own contradictions and I would say that every single belief system that is not God's always has a conflict there is no one that can be logically consistent outside of God's reality now, someone might be consistent and say, well, life is meaningless, so I'll take my life. Something like that. But it's interesting, there was a book called The Floating Opera, which was considered the first postmodern novel by John Bart. I loved it. I read it a couple times. But at the beginning of the day, he goes, life is meaningless, therefore I'm going to take my life. And so I'm going to live one last day um, in order to um, remember it, almost kind of make it meaningful. And by the end of the day, sorry to ruin the book, uh, but he says, I've decided I can't take my life because it too is meaningless. Mm -hmm. And so now he's stuck in paralysis. And so he just has to shrug his hands, shrug his shoulders and just say, life is just a floating opera. It passes and then goes, and it's very Ecclesiastes. Where does it begin? Where does it end? Uh, where is wisdom? Where is foolishness? But... Uh, What's a good life? What's a bad life? Yeah, yeah. 
But um, but uh, so I would say all systems outside of God's reality will create an, a contradiction in oneself uh, until and so we are restless until we find our rest in God. Anyone else? I love details. More like <laughs> the detailing one is about the names. <coughs> yeah, the names. You said the names, like their meaning. I was wondering, I was wondering how do you know the meaning of their names? Um, how they're all connected to God? Because I didn't hear like a ending or something that connected to God. And I was wondering, do you know the meaning of the names they were given um, in the Babylonian language? Yes, yeah, so... Um, so I'll, so the names, um, uh, how can I say that these names, uh, reflect God and what do, does it mean in the Babylonian? Let me start with the Babylonian. Um, so, so, um, Daniel's name became Belteshazzar, which meant may Bel protect his life. Bel. Bel was a God. Okay. Capital B. Um, uh, and then it was, uh, let me look. I have it written down. Hananiah became uh, Shadrach, protection of the moon god. Meshach, who is what Aku is, and uh, and Aku is I think it's Marduk. If I can't, if I if I'm not wrong about that, I think so. I think it's just a different because uh, ancient languages would have different ways of saying it, like mm -hmm. Tommy, Tom, Thomas. Um, so a coup was, I think it's Marduk. Uh, and it's actually making fun of Mishael, which is that man's name who is, is who, um, uh, God is who God is. And, um, or, or actually it's Mishael means, um, God is who God is. Yeah. Where Meshach is, who is what a coup is. So it's making fun of the, the, the religious name or the biblical name. The Jewish name, and then Abednego is servant of Nabu. So um, uh, these are basically um, uh, people who know these kind of uh, languages that know what they mean, and know about the polytheism of that day. Now the names of the four Israelites names are very essential in the Bible. So David means beloved. Abraham means the father of faith, or Father of many nations. Uh, um, Sarah means princess. Eve means uh, living, I think. Um, Adam means from the ground. And so all these names throughout the Bible, Samuel means God hears. Um, all these names throughout the Bible signify something that it says about God. Now some people wonder, and it could be either way, was this the actual name of that person? Or where they actually had a different name, so maybe David's name was Elkanah, or uh, or something else. Um, but he's called David because that's what he signifies. But maybe his name is you know like you write a story about Joy, Joy um, Smith, and she had such a contented heart and she was always good wherever she went. And you're like, okay, so maybe that's kind of true and it's just kind of embellishing um, the characteristic that her name represents. Um, it'd be really hard to meet a joy that's very kind of grumpy all the time, right? But um, 
But in the Bible, the names really represent something that it says about God. And so when you see names, you think, why is that name there? Because the narrator, the, the biblical writer, will always make significance of it. Uh, like the name Samuel, but the significant comes at the end of the story. Um, but, uh, but you see that Samuel's life is all about him being able to hear from God. Not just that Hannah was heard um, by God and therefore she names her son, but actually it marks his life as someone who hears from God when there was an absence of hearing from God. Uh, so when you see these four names together, you think, okay, that's significant. Especially when you don't see their names really showing up again. Uh, Daniel's name shows up again. And in fact, his name shows up a lot, which means God is judge. Uh, and so he brings a lot of judgment. Um, and it's often not God's anger, but it's God's justice. You know, uh, you know, you are on the scales and you are found wanting. Your days are numbered. That's what happens to Belshazzar. And so, uh, so the four names were um, Daniel, God is judge, Hananiah, God is gracious, um, Mishael, God is who God is, and or who is like God, and then um, Azariah, God is our helper. Yeah. Those, that's the meaning of the Hebrew names. Those are the, that's the meaning of the Hebrew names, right. And so the, that's a significant um, to thing is that, that these Hebrew names point to something about God. And so since their names are included, you have to say, what's the significance of their names to this story? And that's something that we often don't do. We just like, oh, they have funny names. It's hard to pronounce. Uh, but we don't often think of the significance of their names. But for the person who was the Hebrew listener, they would hear it. They would hear it. And uh, I believe like um, Hannah and Pinana um, or Penina or whatever her name. And I think her name means bitter. Uh, and Hannah means grace. And so you always have these names that somehow represent. Sometimes it's played ironically. Sometimes it's a fulfillment. So, uh, so that's why I, I kind of emphasize these names. Because this is, that is where the gospel is really being kind of amplified in the story. Um, particularly since they're being renamed by the, the new dominant narrative. And so, but they never lose their identity. Maybe you could comment on, on Jesus renaming Simon. Yeah. And what's the significance of that? Rocky. Yeah. Well, I mean, Peter means rock. Yeah. Uh, and upon you, um, I will establish my church. Uh, now, I don't remember, si I thought Simon also meant rock. No, Cephas did. Um, and so sometimes he was called Cephas, but it still went by the word rock. I don't know what Simon meant. Um, Rocky. Simon means rocky. No, no, I just mean that. that Double. But, but, uh, today we would call him rocky. Oh, today we call him rocky. <laughs> or the rock. There's a famous actor called the rock, right? Um, I don't know if Peter was jacked with muscles, but um, the rock is... But yeah, so and Jesus, um, you know, that's his Greek name. He would not have been called Jesus at home. He probably would have been called Yeshua, which means God saves. Um, and so all these names are very significant. It might be helpful to know that anything ending in I A H or L is God. That's like right. Yah or, or L, which is why you knew the meaning of the names. That's right. So Yah means God. Um, particularly, it means the God of Israel. It means the God who made a covenant. 
He's the one that is personal. But El means most high God. And, uh, and within the biblical account, El and Yah are both lifted as the same. And so whenever you hear Bob Marley yell Yah, he's singing to God. Okay? But I don't think he's singing to the God of Israel. He just likes the word Yah, I think. Um, and so you have significance even with God's name. So in Genesis 1, uh, you hear of Elohim, Most High God. Genesis 2, Yahweh. So we have the word God. And, and if you want to, it's a little shortcut is when you're reading the English, if it says um, Almighty God, that's Elohim, and or of some variant of that, um, maybe El. But if it's Yahweh, it says the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And that usually means, and so, which is, I think, kind of trouble, problematic because when we see the word the Lord in caps, we think, ooh, you know, the, the distant judgy one. Um, or you can, but actually in Hebrew, it's meant to convey God's nearness and his covenant. It can represent his judgment, but it means his closeness. His, he's, made, he's made a covenant with us. Um, it's the almighty God who's the one that is the more. And so throughout Daniel, you never see the word Yahweh, ever. The only time you catch a glimpse of it are in these names. But every time Daniel refers to God or the narrator refers to God, it is always the God of heaven, the most high God, uh, God over history. And so you don't ever have a sense of the covenant God because it's probably because they are in exile. And they're speaking of the God who sits on his throne. Okay, we've kind of removed ourselves from the God of Israel. We've broken his covenant, yet God remains over all, Elohim. And so they're actually resting in the knowledge that he is over all in a pagan country because they don't have the temple. They probably don't even have but some scrolls, perhaps, maybe not. And, um, and so, so, yeah, that's just some kind of the, the thought, the biblical theology behind names. It's important, really important. Anyone else? One more question. Yeah. You, you said that um, somehow God answers or replaces um, like meaningless or the feeling of angst over meaninglessness. Yeah. Which seems like a really big claim. Yeah. It sounds sort of like that means that Christians don't question or wonder about who they are or why they're here. Right. Is that really what you're saying, or, yeah? Yeah, Th that is a great question. I'm glad you asked it, um, so I can qualify um, or um, explain what I mean. So the question is, am I saying that, uh, you know, once we believe in God, then it takes away meaninglessness because he's the one that provides meaning, he's meaning himself, and therefore am I saying that the Christian never feels a sense of lostness, purposelessness, meaninglessness. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we cannot have that, um, that sense of meaninglessness or that sense of lostness or purposelessness. That comes. Um, but I would say that is a result of the fall. Um, but it's not a result of who God is in and of himself. 
And it's when we lose, um, when we lose sight of who we are before Him, and when we lose sight of uh, who we are to be, then we have this weight of, what is this? Now, I would say that a person can be a Christian, a full Christian, and still have that angst, that, that sense of meaninglessness. But, um, and so I don't think that that's a loss of faith. But I do think that that is a point of a crisis or a, or a time of heavy doubt or even just doubt. Because um, we need to continually re- ask this refrain, who am I? I mean, you look at Elijah. I mean, he's the guy that is like pulling back the veil and you're seeing the chariots of fire. And he's like, oh, God, can you just pull back the veil so this guy can see what I see? I mean, this guy's on the top of his game, you know, so to speak. And yet he wants to give up. He wants to, he wants to give up his life. He wants to die. And he wants God to kill him. He's like, why don't you just take my life? And God, and he passes out in the desert, and God sends ravens to feed him food. Sends, it seems like he sends Jesus, the angel of the Lord. So often in the Old Testament, when you see angel of the Lord, it often is, you're, um, it's often kind of a reference to Jesus, an embodied form of God. And, um, and this angel of the Lord feeds him, ravens feed him. And he finds himself in this cave and he still wants to die. And God is like, okay, I'm going to come to you. And so he's sitting there in the cave, kind of like Moses, waiting for God's power to come before him. There's a fire. God's not in the fire. There's an earthquake. God's not in the earthquake. There's a thunderstorm. God is not in the thunderstorm. And then there's a quiet whisper. And, And Elijah hears the call of God in this quiet whisper. And God says, okay, I want you to do... um, um, I want you to talk to these kings. I want you to anoint Elisha and something else. And basically the first thing he does is go to Elisha and say, okay, it's your job. I'm out. <laughs> and then he like somehow is translated into heaven. But, um, but he wanted to give up. Jesus despaired at the highest point. Uh, um, the bitterness um, in the bitterness of soul. You know, he's, he's in complete anguish. Now, I don't think that he has a sense of meaninglessness, but Jesus does have a sense of, really? God, is this the only way? You've got to be kidding me. Isn't there just any other way? Um, And so, or you have Job. I wish it would be better not to have been born. Uh, And it's his friends that are like, well, no, God is God and you're sinful and you just got to figure it out. Um, God is sovereign. And they're not telling terrible theology. Actually, there's... (coughs) A lot of wisdom behind what they say but but job does not lose his righteousness to say why this doesn't make any sense and he's in bitterness of soul and um, and he's in complete anguish before god and god does not blame him in fact he says that job is righteous in what he's done it's the right response so we can be very godly people and have um moments of deep anguish Wondering, where is God? What is God doing? Who am I? And so I'm not to say that Christians don't have a sense of meaninglessness, purposelessness, or lostness. They, in fact, do. But I would say that is a result of the fall. And all that will be taken away when we are brought before God in his perfect presence. And all wickedness and all tears are taken away. Then we will not have a sense of meaninglessness. But for the materialist, 
you lead them to their conclusions, it is only but meaningless unless they want to have a contradiction. Um, and so the best they can do is live into a contradiction to say that there's something that is meaningful. So it's a bit, it's, it's different. Is that yeah. satisfactory? Okay. Okay. Title for you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. They Bring it all around. Ask for a song. What? They ask for a song in a, in the distant land. Asking for a song in a distant they, they, land. They ask for a song. They ask for a song. Yes. You know the, the West Indian song. Uh, yeah. By I think it's Marley. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. So just like make it really cool for a certain contingency. <laughs> yeah. That'll be great. That'll probably be the best lecture I've had in a while. No, that's great. They asked for a song in a, a strange land. in a strange or foreign land. Okay, awesome. Oh, yeah, Tim. Um, just a question with regard to like politics of the thing, because I was just thinking um, on the story as a whole. If you have here where they resolve not to take the food, um, you know, but and they reach the highest levels of politics in Babylon, which is a foreign culture, everything. But I'm just thinking how for people in politics today who are Christians, it seems to be we're trying to change the culture. Like, mm -hmm. and here in the story, I'm trying to think of, of are there any ways that they change the culture, or are they simply? Um, I mean, they, they definitely stick out as being different because of the dietary things, and also like Daniel and the others are also not being willing to worship anyone else but God. Um, but it seems like they don't have a political agenda here other than just doing their job. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Um, well, you know, sometimes when we think about Christians and politics, um, we think they have to go big or go home, you know, make big changes, fight the, fight the man or fight the whatever, um, depending on where you are at on the party line. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I think that sometimes when we think about political agenda or being faithful politicians for God that we really need to make big changes and you don't see big changes that Daniel or his friends have in fact they're just trying to make it through but um, um, I mean one they're given a privileged place they find themselves in the higher courts right away but um, but you see throughout the book of Daniel that their voice is heard, that they aren't without voice. And, uh, you know, he asks, you know, in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He brings his enchanters, astrologers, sorcerers, all these kinds of people, which would have meant Egyptians, Chaldeans, yeah. all the uh, occupied um, exile or the exiles that he's using or of his own people. And he's like, oh, no one can figure out my dream. I'm going to kill everyone. And this one Judean is like, hey, you forgot about the Jew, the Judeans. You know, can I have a word? And and so Daniel comes and is able to interpret the dream, and then he's exalted to the second in, in the land um, because he's shown to have the ability to interpret dreams. And somehow he's forgotten. Uh, in Daniel four, they're like, no one can interpret my dream. They're like, hey, there's this Daniel guy. He's like, oh, he's still around. Okay, let's bring him back. Okay, you're second in command. Um, 
or something like that. And so there are places, there are times when these people have an opportunity. Now with uh, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you don't see that kind of, that same kind of honoring that Daniel gets. Um, uh, and so they just have to endure the fiery furnace. Yeah. Um, and there's one other story I can't remember. Maybe just the fiery furnace. Which they refuse to bow. Well, nevertheless, but you don't see much with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, but they do play their role. And even with the fiery furnace, they're like, okay, we're not bowing to your gods, but if you're going to put us in the furnace, God will protect us. Even if we don't live through this, God will protect us, and his name will be held on high. And, and a miracle happens, and they're protected, and they come without even the singe um, or a smell of smoke. Uh, and, and so these stories are different ways that they are faithful within the political structure of their day. Now, they're not making sweeping <coughs> changes. You know, we need to get Nebuchadnezzar to bring, you know, uh, um, this biblical creation story into the schools. <laughs> That's not happening, you know. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. I, I don't think that that would happen um, since it would be something that would be up against their dominant narrative, their dominant story. But you still see that they're able to be faithful in small ways mm -hmm. and that significant people hear from them at significant moments. So I would say that, uh, you know, when I think of a Christian today, um, you know, I personally have had problems with uh, the American political system and how Christians have played a role in the past several years, and I'm going prior prior to Trump, mm -hmm. but I've just seen where there has been um, uh, a desire to take it back mm -hmm. in a very strong way, and I think that there's a good desire there. Don't get me wrong. I think Christians should desire that, and I'm thankful that we live in a democracy. I'm thankful that America does have a Christian heritage. Um, even if they haven't always been consistent to it, sometimes deplorably so, um, as with African Americans, um, slave trade. Uh, and, and I believe that there is the possibility of trying to say, well, there's still room for the Christians not to abdicate too much. Mm -hmm. Let's try to hold where we can hold. Mm -hmm. And we can see where um, the bulwarks are failing. And we want to kind of, you know shape it up stronger but how might we do that without getting into the power plays and the mudslinging and the uh and the you know sharing of like okay you help me i help you kind of thing because that is a part of the political process for better and for worse but usually i think for worse but how might the christian not fall prey to the political polarization and remain faithful and i and i was just saying one way is to try to 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 um, to maintain the dignity of how you see your enemies, mm -hmm. while at the same time trying to 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 move a nation toward biblical ideals. Maybe not all at once, but maybe little by little. I mean, William Force, William Wilberforce was able to do this in tremendous ways, mm -hmm. and he didn't just. And I think at first he was trying to bring a sledgehammer to the abolition of slavery. Mm -hmm. 
but um, but he learned that he had to chip away. Mm -hmm. He had to chip away, um, and his chipping away had to do with the reformation of morals that he wanted to to um, see the new moral imagination. So he was trying to tell a new story, so that England could understand a new story and how slaves fit into that and how they didn't fit into that. So. So yeah, I think that Christians need to, to try to seek the welfare of the nation yeah. without trying to overthrow it for the Christian cause. Right. I guess just a comment. Um, that out of the stories we're here in Daniel, um, we don't know what, what sort of... I mean, they must have had some hand on politics. Being number two in the kingdom, you have a strong influence on That's right. decisions that are made. Um but, I mean, Babylon is long gone and there's nothing left, and yet we have still the stories of the example right, that yeah. has been, that, that is the significance. I mean, at the time, the significance seems to be, wow, here I am at this position of power. Mm. But to us now, the significance is simply that they were faithful and that God honored that. And That's right. the inspiration that is for and instructive generations. For us. I mean, it'll go on forever until the Lord returns, I think. Yeah. That's right, because we can't establish the kingdom of God on earth. And I think that that's what, something that they were really learning in Daniel, is that they could not establish God's kingdom on earth. They had to allow God to establish his kingdom in his way, um, wherever they might be. Okay, let's call it an end. Um, thank you, and have a good night. Next week is Andy. Okay.